going to read the Bible reading now. So if you've got a Bible there, flick over to Luke chapter 16. I'm going to read Luke 16 starting at verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. Let me just pray, and then Ron will come up and speak. Dear Lord, thank you for this beautiful day and this time together. Please help us to listen well now, to understand and have our hearts changed as we hear Ron speak. Well, I've written a public health warning up here for Beware of filiguria. Because, honestly, filiguria will kill you. It will kill you, filiguria. The people who uh, have filiguria are known as the filiguroi. And I would, I would do anything, actually, to make sure that you are not one of the filiguroi. That you end up with filiguria. Because those who end up with filiguria, those who have that, because they're contaminated by it, they end up in a world of pain and torment. So I would spare you that. So to help you, uh, as a public health warning, the EU has put on three weeks where to sort of try to inoculate you against filiguria. What's filiguria? Filiguria is a Greek word. It just means money life. The love of money. One word, one concept. Money love. Beware of money love. It will kill you. It ends in a world of pain and torment. So the EU, working for God's scriptures, has put aside three weeks to try to inoculate us against money love. And that's what we're going to look at over these three weeks. We're going to start today with Luke chapter 16. Uh, we're going to, each week we're going to look at a little passage out of Luke's Gospel, which is sort of helpful because the EU is running a bit of a campaign this year to encourage people at the uni to read Luke's Gospel with the Uncover program. Uh, and you know, I thought this way, by focusing in on the book of Luke, that'll help you if you read Luke with other people, then hopefully then you'll understand it better yourself. So that's why we picked three passages out of Luke's Gospel. If you've got a Bible there, I'll pull it up on your device. Luke chapter 16, before we jump into verse 9, which is where Christian was reading for us, Jesus starts this chapter with a really, really weird story. It's a very strange story. And so we're going to start by having a look at this very strange story about a dishonest manager. Now, what's happening when Jesus tells this story? If you know Luke's gospel, back in chapter 9, Jesus decided that he was going to head towards Jerusalem knowing that he was going to die there. He heads there nonetheless because he knows that his death there in Jerusalem will be part of God's bigger plan to bring salvation to all those who put their trust in Jesus. 
part of the bigger place salvation, so he's heading to Jerusalem. Large crowds, we know, have been following him, and uh, as Jesus is been going, he's been turning and talking to the crowds and explaining what it actually means to be one of Jesus' followers. In particular, in chapter 4, then, he talked about how if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up your cross to follow me. What does that mean? That means that you're going to have to be willing to sacrifice all sorts of other things if you're going to follow me and be one of my disciples. He says that to the crowd, and then when you get to chapter 16, Jesus turns to his disciples, those who are saying, yes, I do want to follow you. And he explains to them what that carrying your cross is going to look like when it comes to money and possessions. He explains just how radical your attitude and your actions are going to have to be towards money if you want to genuinely be one of Jesus' disciples. And he does it by telling them this fully strange story. Have a look there at the story there in Luke 16. It starts, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. When you read manager there, you should probably think of a better word once is literally steward. So a steward with someone, often a slave in your household, who you entrusted responsibility to. Responsibility for your household's business or responsibility for your household's possessions and goods. You entrusted your stuff to the steward. They were to use it, not just however they like, they were to use it on your behalf. They were to use it according to your purposes, your intent. That was their job as a steward. So here's this guy. But this guy is accused, this steward is accused of wasting his own, his um, boss's possessions, his master's possessions. What happened in verse 2? So the master called in the steward and asked him, what did this I hear about you? Give an account of your management. Because you cannot be manager, steward any longer. No real question here about, oh, I've heard something a bit questionable, you just want to fill me in and then we'll work it out. And this guy goes, no, what I've heard means you're out of here. You're gone. Give an account of your management, which means turn over the books. The books you've been keeping all my accounts in, hand them over. Your time is over. You're seeing the door. What's this guy going to do? Does he object? Does the steward go, oh, no, great misunderstanding. Oh, so I've served your family for generations. Please No, that's the guy knows the gig's up, but it's just all over. So what does he say in verse 3? The steward said to himself, What shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to bear. Then he comes up with a plan. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. He's not looking for a dinner date. He's saying, I want to be welcomed as a steward into another household. I want to get another job. When I lose this job, I want to be sure that I can get employment. He's come up with a plan. A plan to secure his future. Wonder what the plan is. Well, let's see. Verse 5. So the steward called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Why does he say to him, sit down quickly? Because the, the, the manager, the steward, knows his time is short, right? 
the owner's already asked for the books to be handed over. He's just got a short time to put his plan into action. So he says to the guy, sit down quickly, sit down quickly, take the 800, make it 400. Now, just to give you some idea, that is a massive financial windfall for the guys who have to get it. People who sort of try to work out these things, what would be a comparable sort of saving these days, reckon that it was about a year and a half wages to save for, for a day labourer. So I don't know, sort of basic wage for 50 grand, say, so a year and a half, you're talking 50, 60, 70 grand of savings is what this dishonest steward just offered to this dealer. Forget the 800, you just owe four. 50, 60, 70 grand savings. You think the debtor would have been pretty happy? Yeah, he's pretty, pretty, pretty stoked by this whole. Does he know that it comes with no authority, that it's not authorised, that it's completely dodgy? Not clear in the story, possibly does. The whole idea of sit down quickly, write it out in your own hand, which is what you do. You have an IOU, they write out the IOU and give it to you. This is how much I owe you. So it all looks fine, but it smells fully dodgy. And then the guy does it again. The steward does it again. There in verse 7. Then he asks the second, How much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replies. So he told him, Take your bill, make it 800. Yeah, you work out the wheat sort of, even today, sort of value about the same amount of weight. Now, okay, so this guy, this dishonest steward, has just ripped off his master by another 100, 150 grand. Why has he done it? He's done it because he has, by giving these guys a massive saving, that even though he's been kicked out of this job, one of them will go, you will look to me, I'll take you on. I mean, they might watch him pretty closely, but clearly he's joined him. But he's hoping that he's used the little opportunity that he had to secure his future. That's been his strategy. Now, if you're listening to that story, and you're thinking, that dishonest steward He's not a good, he's not a nice thing to work, right? He is not somebody you want sort of working against you or winning, working for you. And you think everybody listening to that story is thinking, that guy is bad news. How is Jesus going to end this story? Surely it's going to end like some of the other stories of Jesus tells, some of the other parables. Surely it's going to end up with the, the master taking this dishonest steward and getting him thrown into prison so he can pay back every cent. Or well, maybe it's going to add, end with him sort of being thrown into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That would be alright, that would be a good end for him, wouldn't it? How's this story going to end? And this is where it's really strange. Jesus' particular ending. Verse 8. Jesus ends the story by saying, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. What? The master commends him? What's that about? You've got to understand what this, what this steward had done was not just secure for himself some sort of welcome into a new employment situation. What he had done was even more clever than that. Because the particular plan that he put into action actually cornered the master so that the master wouldn't be able to take any adverse action. See, because once it becomes known in the village that, hey, I, as, you know, I'm the guy who has the olive tree, I owe the, the master this massive amount of money, and guess what? He's given me this huge discount. Isn't he great? Everybody goes, oh, wow, wow. And then the other guy says, and I owe a similar amount of wheat. And he's like, 
Wow, isn't he great? Isn't he great? What's the master going to do at that point? He's going to say to everybody, oh, no, 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 you are the empty seat. Taylor. Really? He's going to go from being a hero to being despised. He'll lose all sorts of faith in the village. So the steward has very cleverly worked out how to secure himself a welcome and to corner the master so that the master can't take any action. So the master commends him not to doing a good thing. He's not done a good thing, but the master recognises he's done a very clever thing. Clever in his own interest. He's been very clever, very shrewd. The master doesn't say, oh, wow, you've done such great things. Come back and have your job. That master's done it. You're out of here. No doubt about that. But I acknowledge your cleverness. You've used the little opportunity you've had to abuse my possessions to secure yourself some hope in the future. That's clever. It's not good. But he commends you. That's the weird story that Jesus tells. How does Jesus then apply it? Jesus makes two applications of this parable. So we're going to look at The first one is in verse, uh, halfway through verse 8 and verse 9, and it's about foresight. Notice what Jesus says halfway through verse 8. Jesus says, For the people of this world, like the dishonest steward in the parable, the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own time than are the people of the light. I tell you, Use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What's he saying is this dishonest steward in my parable, my little story, he's got more foresight than do God's people living in this world. God's people do not act with the same sort of foresight as that guy in the parable. That guy in the parable used wealth that he had to secure himself a welcome, find himself another job. But he says, God's people, they do not use what has been entrusted to them to secure for themselves an eternal welcome. Notice what he says there in verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What he wants God's people to do is to use the money, the possessions that are being entrusted to you so that at the very end, on that final day, people will welcome you into eternal dwelling, welcome you into eternity because of the way you used worldly wealth now. And Jesus is saying God's people don't have that sort of foresight. They are not thinking about using worldly wealth with that sort of foresight. Like you should. You should. How do you go about actually doing that? How do you use worldly wealth now to help secure yourself a welcome into eternal dwellings? How do you do that? Well, fortunately, Jesus goes on later in the chapter and helps us understand. Jump down to verse 16, where Jesus tells us another story that helps illustrate this very sort of foresight. Or rather, it's a negative example. It shows us what not having foresight looks like. This is a parable about another rich man, but this time the rich man is not the hero of the story. The rich man is the guy who stuffs up. And a poor bloke named Lazarus. Read there from verse 19. Sorry, verse 19. 
There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Live in luxury every day. Who would want that? At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in age. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to that. No, Father Abraham said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. See, in this little parable, it gives you a bit of a picture of what it looks like, or what it doesn't look like, rather, to be true when using worldly wealth. He was the rich man, he lived in luxury every day, he had all this worldly wealth, and he was not true. He was not acting with foresight. He hadn't used what God entrusted to him, as God had instructed through Moses and the prophets. He'd not helped a fellow member of God's people, Paul Lazarus at his gate, he not helped him when he was in need. He said he kept everything just for himself. And consequently, at the end, he's not welcomed by Lazarus into an eternal home. That could have been the case. If he used what God had entrusted to him, according to God's purposes, as instructed by Moses and the prophets, then he could have been welcomed by Lazarus, who he could have helped, into the eternal home. The picture here then is what we can use what God entrusts to us for his purposes as instructed by the scriptures. That's how Jesus' disciples are lived. That's what it looks like to be truly money smart, to be money wise. It doesn't mean invest it wisely now so you get a greater return now. According to Jesus, smart financial investment is about using worldly wealth for God's purposes now so that you might be welcomed into eternal home by those who are helped by the money that you use now. That's the picture of wise financial investment that Jesus made here. That's what it looks like to be truly unwise. Now you may say, if you're thinking about this second parable though, of the rich man and Lazarus, you sort of think, wow, that, that particular conclusion that Abraham gives in the little story, there in verse 25, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted and you're in agony. Is that how it works? Is that God's system? 
you have a really, really bad life now, you're going to get a good life then. But you have a really blessed life now, you end up with a bad life then. Is it, is it sort of some sort of karma system going on here? Is it some sort of salvation by what you do? If only he just given some of his money away, he would have been right. Is that what it is? Is that the situation? Well, two, two reflections on that. First of all, you can't take one parable of Jesus and construct out of it a whole theology of everything. It just doesn't work like that. You have to read this particular parable where Jesus is trying to make a particular point. You have to read it in the context of everything else Jesus says. There's lots of different parables Jesus tells, and it's very clear by all of his teaching that the way we come to God, the way that we're saved by God, is by repentance and faith. By actually saying, crying out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I need your help. I realise that I can't do it without you. But I need your grace and forgiveness expressed to me one for me at the cross and Jesus. That's how we are saved. Our entrusting of ourselves though to Jesus, it has to actually mean something in your life. When you say, I am going to trust you, Jesus, that's saying, yes, I'm going to pick up my cross and I'm going to walk after you. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. That means your faith is going to be lived out in your life, day by day, week by week, year by year. And the particular point that Jesus is making out of this parable is not about how you get saved. The particular point is you claim to be one of God's people. You claim to love God and follow me, then that's going to play out in how you use what God has entrusted to you, how you use money and possession. And if it doesn't play out in that arena, then you're not really following me after all, are you? That's the particular point I think you're trying to make. So first of all, the first, first application is foresight. Use what God has entrusted to you now to secure an eternal welcome for yourself. Use it with an eternal framework in mind. The second application he makes is about being trustworthy. Picks up on this idea of being a steward. Now, back, go back to your first story, the dishonest steward. He was, he was dishonest, but he had foresight. So Jesus commends his foresight, at least he had some foresight, but Jesus does not commend his dishonesty. And he makes this clear when you get to verse 10. So look back to verse 10. He says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. It's a bit of a maxim, right? Sort of a proverb. It's just a statement. If you want to know whether someone's going to be dishonest, if you trust them a lot, well, see if they've been dishonest with a little bit. If they've been trustworthy in a little bit, then there's a good chance they'll be trustworthy with a lot. In fact, we just saw that in the first parable. The dishonest steward, he was sprung by his master for being dishonest. He'd already been dishonest, but not that we don't know how. He'd been dishonest in a little, and then when the opportunity came to lose his job, what happened? He rips off his mark by another 150 grand, right? He, he goes dishonest too much. You've actually seen that act and lived out in the first parable. But Jesus then applies it to his disciples in verse 11 and 12. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, 
Who will give you property of your own? Now, Jesus is not giving you rental, rental and property advice. You know, when you're living in someone else's rental property, property not your own, you'll go after it. Oh, yeah, they might give you a house. That's not what he's saying. Right? He's keeping that same framework of eternal foresight that's been operating throughout the chapter. He said, what does he say here in verse 11? If you've not been trustworthy in handling the worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Where are the true riches? The true riches are three and two. And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, namely everything that God gives to you, if you've not been trustworthy in how you've been a steward of that, who's going to trust you with something that is your own? Your own inheritance, for example. That's the parallel of the story. Underneath this is this idea that we really are stewards. That this is a right sort of metaphor for understanding our relationship to God and all the things in this world. We are not owners. We are not masters. We are stewards. Those to whom God has entrusted his stuff so that we can use it for his purpose. Psalm 24 verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything Little verse, massive idea. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means you. You belong to this. It means your car belongs to this. It means if you one day own a house, you don't own that house because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Little verse, very big idea. Now, to make it clear to you, I want you, I'd love you to indulge me for a moment. I want you to find, take out your wallet, or take out your purse, or whatever you keep your plastic and your money in. I'm going to set this up so you can see what's in my wallet. Here is my wallet. I have a tax receipt that I have one day I have to give for the government. But anyway, I have some cash. My son paid me back what he owed me, and now I'm rich. Uh, So I have some cash, and I have some cards. And look, here are the cards. Can you see the cards? Can you read that? (laughs) Yes, I've just got a severe complaint thumb. Have you got a card? Have you got out a card? Get your card out. Have a look at it. Have a look at your card. Come on. Have, now, notice on the card, does it have a name on the card? If, if your card says Roman T. Kent, you might like to return it, by the way. But, see, the problem with this card, the problem with this card is that it says Roman T. Kent. It's theologically unsound. <laughs> Isn't it? It should say Lord Jesus Christ, shouldn't it? Because all the money that I can access with this card doesn't belong to me. Does it? The earth is the Lord and everything in it. The money that it, that I can access is not my money. It is his money. I am but a steward. 
And he doesn't entrust it to me for me to use however I like. He entrusts it to me as a steward, his steward. He owns me, he owns this money. He entrusts it to me to use for him. That's what it means to be a trustworthy steward. Every time I use this car, I'm using it for him. That's a big idea, isn't it? Doesn't that sort of change how you think about using money? Doesn't that sort of change how you think about your car rego papers? It's got your name on it, but it's not your car. The title leads to your house, has your name on it, but it's not your house. When you make a will and bequest at the other end of life and think, how will I distribute all my goods? They're not your goods to distribute, are they? They've been entrusted to you by the Lord Jesus to use for His purposes. We're stewards. Just stewards. If you get that biblical truth, that will quite possibly transform every single financial decision you make for the rest of your life. Including whether you buy a coffee this afternoon. <coughs> including when you buy a house, including about what sort of car you decide to buy, including about what sort of holidays you decide to go on, including including what school you decide you send your kids to because that costs money. But it will transform everything once you get that you really are Jesus' steward. It has big implications for us all. Notice then how Jesus finishes this little section. Verse 13. He drives this conclusion. Verse 13. No one, he says, no servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Why can't you serve God and money? It's because you can't genuinely love both. You can't genuinely love God and genuinely love money. You can't love God and still be committed to money as a master. You have to choose. You have to choose. Who are you going to serve? That will have massive implications. See, money, money is very much a master. It was then and it is now in our society. You think about money as a master for a moment. Money is a master that promises much, that demands a lot, and fails to deliver. I need to help you understand that, what I mean by that. What does money promise? You make a lot of money. What will that enable you to do? Well, it promises you security. If you have a lot of money, you can get secure. You know that, you hear it from your parents, don't you? Make a lot of money, you can buy, buy some property. You can put it into your super. You, like, they just tell you all the time, money will help you get secure. 
So money promises you security. Money promises you pleasure. If you make enough money, you can go on lots of holidays. Money promises you comfort. It promises you ease and early retirement. Money promises you contentment. Money promises you happiness. Money promises you even respect in the eyes of others. Whoever has the most, we we respect. Money promises you lots of things. But in order to have those things, money says, well, you're going to have to give me a lot. It demands a lot of you, right? It demands your focus, your attention. It demands that you work hard. It demands time. It demands energy. Money demands a lot from you in order to get what it promises. Now, at one level, you might think that's okay, but the, the sad truth is, from the scriptures, we know that money, whilst it promises a lot in return for what you give it, it actually fails to deliver. It can't deliver security. It can't give you a guarantee of happiness. It can't give you a guarantee of satisfaction or comfort or ease or even respect. Money can't deliver on those things. If you want to see it in one particular place, uh, you can just flip with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, or I'll just read it out to you. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul says there, Command those who are rich in this world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life of the Spirit of life. You can see that that same eternal perspective operating at Paul Cross there, Timothy, that same operate with worldly wealth now with foresight, because he says, you, you try to put your trust, your hope in money, it's just, it's um, so uncertain. It can't deliver on what it promises. So Jesus says, as a matter of grace, as a, as a moment of sort of breaking in with the truth, where the truth can actually set you free from this society's lies, you can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and money. Now it's interesting that the Pharisees who heard this, they didn't like it. Verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. See, the Pharisees claimed to love God, but they were the fill of glory. They were money lovers. That's where that word is, actually. They loved money. They had fill of glory. They claimed to love God, but they were actually money lovers. And look at what Jesus says about them. He says, You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your heart. What is highly valued amongst men is detestable in God's sight. Yes, everybody loves money. Everyone esteems money and the rich. But he says, just for you've got money loving your heart, God can see your heart and it's detestable. You have to choose, friends. You have to choose. Money as a master who promises much, demands a lot, but ultimately won't deliver. And ultimately we know from these couple of stories, it will end in torment and pain. Or you choose God. 
who you know is good and who you know has good purposes for you and who even though following his way may mean that you do things that are completely different to what everyone else in the world says you should do with money but you know because he is good and it's his stuff and you're his child that you will use it for his purposes and that will be good. You have to choose. You have to choose. Next week, we're going to look at then what does it actually mean to use God's stuff according to his purpose? What does that actually look like? What do I actually do with them? The stuff that he's entrusted to me. How do I use that for God's purposes? That's next week. But the first part of your three-part inoculation against Philadelphia is this. Know that you have to choose, you have to choose your master, and that if you choose to love and serve God as a follower of Jesus, then that means you need to be a trustworthy steward of everything that God entrusts to you, and you do it for his purposes. That's the first part of your inoculation. Dear Lord, um, I pray that you will not allow us to be seduced by the love of money and the hollow promises that it offers us. You are our only true and loving master. Help us to use our worldly wealth with foresight according to your purposes, aware of the reality that extends beyond this life. And Lord, you tell us that we do not own the things of this world, but instead that you give us some things to steward for your glory. And I pray that you'll let this radical truth really sink in for us, into our hearts, and govern the way that we use the resources we have access to. Please make us trustworthy stewards of your wealth and be continuing to transform the way we think about money as the series continues over the next few weeks. Amen. Amen. See you all next week.